Hello, Hope Church family. I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Now we are continuing our series, even though our discipleship series was kind of a part of this series, or definitely a part of this series, we are continuing in our series, Your Kingdom Come, as we go through the book of Matthew over the next two decades. Just kidding. We don't know how long it's going to take. But Matthew chapter 5, and we are starting this series that we are including in Your Kingdom Come of the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. And we are calling just these five chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, we are calling them Kingdom Living. This is Jesus explaining how you live as part of His kingdom. So again, I want to invite you Matthew chapter 5, and we are going to uh, jump in there in just a second. But the Sermon on the Mount has been called the Great Sermon of the Great King. The Great Sermon of the Great King. But I want you to picture yourself at this time over 2,000 years ago, or roughly 2,000 years ago, and what this looks like. Because this is not how the faith at that time operated. There wasn't a belief system that operated at this time uh, that Jesus was doing. He was performing miracles. He had these disciples following him around. He wasn't necessarily going into synagogues, but he was going into different places and villages and communities. And so I want you to put yourself here as we read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. That is our introduction into the Sermon on the Mount, and where we're going to be for the remainder of this evening. Let's go back through again. Now when he saw the crowds... Uh, some versions say multitude. But I want to point out that we see this consistently with Jesus. He saw the crowds. He saw the multitudes. They weren't just another face that he could brush off as a face in the crowd. They were individuals that Jesus knew needed salvation. He saw the crowds. He had compassion on the crowds. He saw the multitudes. He had compassion on the multitudes. Jesus came for the crowds. He came for the multitudes who were looking for hope. It says he went up on a mountainside. I have to point out, this was church outside. He was outside. The greatest pastor ever taught the greatest message ever outside on the side of a mountain. I don't know why that never hit me before. Maybe it's because we're doing church outside still. But I text Liz and Will and I said, hey, maybe we just stay outside. Maybe instead of planting churches inside other churches, we just start going to all the amphitheaters in the area and start Sunday morning churches in amphitheaters. I don't know. I'm not saying that's what we're doing. It was just a thought. But what does that look like to be outside? You go up on the side of a mountain. It's hard for us to find a mountain because we are in what's called the low country of South Carolina. So we found a parking lot. But they found a mountainside. Jesus went up on a mountainside and the crowds, the multitudes, followed him. It says, and he sat down. This doesn't have the meaning to us because, like right now, I'm standing up teaching. But in that culture, throughout the cultures of that time, the rabbi or the teacher sat down. That was a place of authority to teach from. And so it's very important to understand Jesus sits down with this authority. And we'll find at the, in the end of chapter 7, it says, And the people were amazed because 
He never claimed where he had authority. Now, most of the teachers at that time would say because of a prophet or a prophet said this or the scroll says this or a rabbi said this. Jesus just taught them because he was the ultimate authority, which we covered last week. He sat down. His disciples came to him. This is a crowd bigger than just the twelve. But by referring to them as disciples, he's referring to them as people who were following Jesus. They believed that what Jesus was doing was different. And so they followed him. And when we follow Jesus, we are automatically considered or called his disciples. So there's this large crowd, we don't know how many, on the side of a mountain, we don't know what mountain. But Jesus taught them. It says, and he began to teach them. He began to instruct them. Now we've continually said that Matthew is not a book done in chronological order, but rather it is a collection really of five messages that Jesus taught and the effects of them afterwards. And this is a book, Matthew again was a book used for the instruction of how to plant churches, if you will. It was the original church manual for the early church. It was the original book, this book of Matthew, that circulated very widely throughout it seems the known world at the time and maybe even beyond. Actually, they found manuscripts beyond the Roman Empire of it, older manuscripts. So it was the manual for church planting and it was the manual for discipleship. And that is how these churches were brought together and led and taught from early on was from this book. One author writes, from the biblical point of view, all Christians are disciples, so the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is not for a few more committed believers. This is the heart of Jesus' teaching for all believers. In other words, this isn't just for some who may be pastors or leaders in the church. This is the teaching for everyone who considers themselves a follower of Jesus, not those who are more committed than others. This was the call in following after me. This is now how you represent the kingdom, is living like this. Don't, don't turn this off yet. I'll explain how we do this in a minute if that seems overwhelming. But this is the heart of Jesus' teaching for all believers. You see, Jesus is challenging his actual disciples to live different than the world outside them. Jesus is challenging his disciples to live different than the world outside them. And that includes the religious leaders of the time. That includes the religious leaders that they have come to look up to. We'll see as we go through this in more detail. But Jesus is challenging them to live differently than the world, but even inside their own culture, even inside their own religious leaders that they have been following. The Sermon on the Mount has been used as a manual for peaceful resistance since its writing. When Christians have asked, how do we face government? How do we face authority? How do we do this? People have used it sometimes wrong and sometimes correctly. Uh, people have used it who don't even believe that Jesus is the Savior. Mahatma Gandhi referred to it, and that is what led him to do, is following these teachings of what he thought was just a good prophet, not a Savior in Jesus. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. used it to lead nonviolent protests and nonviolent and peaceful and loving ways to go against the status quo of the country at the time. And so this has been used by people to say, how would Jesus do this? Uh, several years ago, there's all these bracelets. I still see them here and there. The WWJD, simple. It's found in the Sermon on the Mount. This is how Jesus handled things. This is how Jesus taught his followers to handle things. So 
I want you to write down, I have two takeaways and three applications. Takeaway take number one, the first takeaway. The message of the Sermon on the Mount challenges the inner person, not the outward action. By doing this, Jesus was also confronting the religious leaders and their misinformation. Jesus was challenging the current spiritual leaders and the misinformation that they had been giving out for a long period of time. In other words, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin council, the rabbis who were taught by the Pharisees and vice versa, they were teaching them their take on the law of Moses. And we'll see in just a couple of weeks that Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, meaning that Jesus, who was part of the process of giving the law to Moses and knew the spirit of the law behind it, is now here to correct what was given in false ways. And the Pharisees added to the law to make themselves look better and to try to live out. And we will see, as we talked about with John the Baptist in chapter 3, the Pharisees are always under fire from Jesus. He is always calling them out. They come to him with questions, trying to trap him, and he sends them away confused, unable to answer. Why? Because Jesus is all-knowing. Because Jesus wrote the law. And so the Pharisees were full of fake news, if you will. They were full of misinformation, information that they wrote down and wanted people to hold to that was never part of the plan of God. Michael J. Wilkins writes that the emphasis in the Sermon on the Mount will be on the inside-out transformation. Jesus will continually go to inner motivation, not external performance. The inner life will naturally transform the outer life. The heart that treasures the kingdom of heaven above all else will be the starting point for transformation for the entire life. We have talked a lot about transformation as we have gone through this discipleship series. I love, going back to Neil McGlone, that transformation is the, is the Holy Spirit's number one job in our life. And so when we're reading through uh, chapter 5, 6, and 7, and as we go through it this fall and we look at how Jesus is saying these laws, or he keeps saying, you have heard, what he's saying is you're trying to live this out, but your heart is not in the right place. When your heart is in the right place, when your heart is fully dedicated to Jesus, transformation takes place and the outward actions happen. Not because of you, but because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and the empty grave and because of the Holy Spirit working in your life. It is about where your heart is, not your outward actions. The second takeaway is as we study the Sermon on the Mount, we should understand that this is the instruction manual for living out the gospel. So first takeaway, the message of the Sermon on the Mount challenges the inner person, not the outward action. And second takeaway, this is the instruction manual for living out the gospel. The good works or fruit production that Jesus and the New Testament writers talk about is going back to this idea. It all comes back to the Sermon on the Mount. It plays out differently, but it goes back to this is the base idea. When you are representing the kingdom of God as a follower, as a disciple of Jesus, this is now how you 
live. And bearing fruit is something we have talked about as we have walked through almost every book in the history of Hope Church. It is something that is talked about at such great length. Even the Psalm series, we started in Psalm chapter 1. The Discipleship series, we started uh, when mentioned it several times, but I remember Mike Seaver who walked through Psalm chapter 1, talking about bearing fruit. Why? Because bearing fruit, or passages like it, bearing fruit, or doing good works, these passages are mes- uh, these types of passages are mentioned, depending on what version you use, almost 60 times in the New Testament. Almost 60 times referring to producing Good works, producing fruit, are mentioned over and over and over again, or the likeness of them is found in almost every book in the New Testament. Why? Because that is why we were created. In Ephesians chapter 2, you were created to understand, like, we now can have a relationship with God. Why? Because he has planned for us to do good works since before the foundation of the world. Remember, we go back, speaking of good works, back in Matthew chapter 3 is when we first kind of talked about this. Matthew chapter 3, we have John the Baptist. And what does he say? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, and he's talking to the Pharisees, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus explains as he closes out the Sermon on the Mount at the end of chapter 7. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Jesus expounds on this with his disciples after the Last Supper. And in John chapter 15, we covered this when we were going through John. But I think it's so important to read these passages and allow the word of God to work in us as we study his word and allow his word to come into our hearts and, sorry, I just hit the microphone come into our hearts and change our hearts from the inside. Because the word of God is powerful and living and active and it is able to cut through and pierce and transform our lives. So what does Jesus tell his disciples as they just had the Last Supper and they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane and more than likely they're walking by the temple where these carvings of grapes on vines. He says, I am the true vine and the Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. 
As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love one another. Apostles go on and continue this theme after Jesus has risen again and gone back to heaven. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 9, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. I literally have goosebumps all over my arms right now. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of these things find their base in the Sermon on the Mount. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And James 1.27 which we're going to be using James as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Some uh, theologians and authors have, have said that James is basically, when, ja- when James the author wrote it, it was basically a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And so we are partnering them together as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount. James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the instruction manual for living out the gospel. So now I want to give you three application points. Three application points that we can take away and walk away from this. Application point number one. The Sermon on the Mount teaches us how to live out our faith, but also shows our desperate need for Christ in order to do it. Like I said earlier, it sounds overwhelming. But a big point of this, as as Jesus is teaching the people on the mountainside, as Jesus is teaching us, even now in his word that is active and alive and will exist for eternity, he's telling us, you need me and I am here for you. You can't do this on your own. You will wear yourself out. How do I know? 
I know from experience. How do I know that you are in the same place? Because I have conversations with so many people who are exhausted and tired. Why? Because we're doing it on our own strength. If it is about outward action, we will wear ourselves out. But if it is about inner transformation, it just happens. We cannot live in a way good enough. It must be gospel transformation through salvation in Christ guided by the Holy Spirit. We cannot do this by ourselves. It has to be gospel transformation that is only available because of what Christ did on the on the cross and the empty grave for you and for me. And it must be a spirit-led transformation in our lives that allows us to do this. So the Sermon on the Mount should show us our desperate need for him. It is not possible to do this without him. Takeaway number two, living out the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest way to reach the lost. Living out the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest way to reach the lost. Why? Because it is different. The beginning of the church started in persecution. The beginning of the church saw their leaders being martyred, fed to lions, burned on, on poles, hung, burned alive, boiled in oil, you name it. That was the early church fathers and how most of them died. Peter was crucified upside down. We can go through the disciples. We can go through the early church fathers for the first hundreds of years of the church and it thrived. Why? Because people said they are different. They see people as individuals with a soul. They treat everyone the same. They love everyone. At great sacrifice to themselves, they will, they will reach them. And Jesus knew when he taught this, this is the way that changes the world. John MacArthur writes that the life obedient to the principles of the Sermon on the Mount is the church's greatest tool for evangelism. When we live this out, when we go to the Sermon on the Mount as our discipleship manual, as the manual for how to do church, it is the greatest evangelism tool for our church. Not a program, not an event, living this out daily where we live, work, and play. And application number three, the highest reason to live out the Sermon on the Mount is quite simple. It pleases God. The best and biggest reason to live out the Sermon on the Mount is simple. It pleases God. If you're wondering, how do you please God? How do you glorify God in all things? How? It's by living out these principles. How do we bear fruit? How do we do good works? By living out these principles in the Sermon on the Mount. We are commanded over and over again, bear fruit. If you remain in me, I remain in you. You're told in Colossians, you are qualified. You've been qualified because of what I've done on the cross and the empty grave. You are now qualified to do good works. We are told over and over again, again in James, we are going to have an entire message just on do good works. By you doing good works, you show that your faith is real. A very hard quote by John Bunyan. John Bunyan lived in the 1600s. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress while he was in prison for holding church outside of a state-driven church in England. And he said, 
at the day of doom, men shall be judged according to their fruits. It will not be said then, did you believe? But were you doers or talkers only? You read that again. At the day of doom, you can also read it, judgment. Men shall be judged according to their fruits. It will not be said then, did you believe? But were you doers or talkers only? We go through all these passages and what do we see Jesus and John the Baptist say? The ax is going to cut down the tree that doesn't produce fruit and it will be thrown into the fire. Jesus says the vine that doesn't produce fruit will be thrown into the fire. Over and over again, he warns us it is the fruit. If we abide in him, we will produce fruit. If we are not producing fruit, if we are not living in this way, we have to make sure that we are attached correctly. Were we ever attached in the first place? Why? At the day of doom, men shall be judged according to their fruits. It will not be said then, did you believe, but were you doers or talkers only? I'm going to close out with Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. A lot of talk currently is this the end times. If it is, we should be running to abide in him. We should be running to abide in his body, the church. You should be living these out. So I have news. We are in the last days. And we've been in the last days since Jesus returned back to heaven. We must live that way. Now, if you're outside with us at this point, we are going to go into a time of communion. But I want to challenge you if you're listening to this and you have never made that first step of knowing Jesus as your forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life without calling out to him. I want to challenge you that that is the first step is to recognize who Jesus is, to recognize your desperate need for him, to call out to him, to talk to him. And trust me, you will know what to say. You will know what you need to make him the forgiver of your sins to confess to him. Augustine, who lived thousands of years ago, wrote, the confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. The confession of what we have done, the, the asking Jesus to forgive us of what we have done in the past is the first good work that we do in the Spirit and begin that transformation, that gospel transformation in our lives that the Holy Spirit enters and starts to guide us for the rest of our lives. It is the first step of abiding in him. It is grafting ourselves into the vine and allowing him to work through us as we abide in him. Hope Church, 
we love you. We want to know how we can be praying for you. We would love to hear from you. And our prayer is that where you are right now, that God, through his word and his spirit, convicts all of us to live for him and bear fruit. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come to you, that you have qualified us. It was nothing we have done. It is everything that you accomplished, that we can come to you and call out to you, that you rescue us, you save us, you give us hope, joy, peace, forgiveness, grace, mercy, everything that we so desperately need, even and even more so in the times we don't realize it. Lord, I pray that you work in us, that we would hold fast to these truths, that we wouldn't see this as an hour or an hour and a half that we we give up once a week, but that this is just the starting point, that we live out our week differently for your glory. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.